Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. So glad that you're joining me again today as we are continuing uh, in our episodes on the book of Revelation, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We are going to cover the sixth of the seven churches in chapter three today. This is the chapter that we're on. We've covered Uh, already five of them in chapter two and part of chapter three. And we're going to study today the church at Philadelphia. And what makes the church of Philadelphia unique along with the church at Smyrna that we covered in chapter two is that these two churches do not have anything negative said about them. Uh, And so we have to highlight the greatness of these two churches because the Lord had nothing critical, nothing negative Uh, to say to them at all. And uh, we know that all seven of these churches, again, just by way of a quick reminder, they were literal churches existing in what would be called uh, Asia Minor in the day that John was given these words by Christ. But today it's modern day Turkey. Uh, and each of these churches were literal, had had uh, people there, leadership, things going on for the Lord. They were much like churches today, other than they did not have buildings, you know, buildings, uh, cathedrals, whatever people call a place to assemble, are, are of rather modern times for our churches especially. Our Baptist churches were persecuted so much throughout the Middle Ages that they uh, just in within the last couple hundred years in Europe and then in America were allowed to build their own buildings. So uh, back in the day of Christ, when a church like the Church of Philadelphia met, they would have met uh, probably at several different locations around uh, the city. Uh, in members' homes, maybe at uh, at one place, outdoors or in a in a in a woods or an open valley area or meadow, something like that. We don't know for sure. We don't even know the size of these churches. It's impossible for us to uh, know exactly how big the assembly uh, of these churches was. But anyway, as we come to these churches, remember we're also adding this special kind of addendum at the end, reminding you of the historical similarities of each of these churches with the seven periods of church history. And I'll bring that up at the end of each of these studies. So let me jump into the text with you like we've been doing. uh, And I want to read verses 7 through 13. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also uh, keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. 
All right, well, back to the text itself. All seven churches have some similarity. The things the Lord writes to them, they each start with uh, him announcing to the angel, the pastor, the messenger uh, of that particular church, and then something about himself. And uh, verse 7 is a, is a really important statement about Christ. It's actually quoting from the Old Testament. Um, he says, These things saith he that, that is holy, he that is true. Now, of course, that's about the characteristics of Christ. These are his attributes. He's God. He has the same attributes, the same characteristics as God the Father and God the Spirit. And so he refers to that here. And then he refers to this idea, He that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Uh, Now, what is he getting at there? Basically, he's talking about an open door of opportunity. Uh, an open uh, way in which God's going to direct this church and, and, and they're going to take that opportunity to do a great work for Him. It's like back to the teaching in Scripture that God directs us by His Spirit. Remember how in the Old Testament, when Israel was wandering through the, the desert for 40 years under Moses until they would come into the Promised Land by Joshua, uh, God would direct them by a pillar of fire by night to light up and warm up the people and and let them travel at night. And then by day, a cloud, a pillar of a cloud that would shade them and be something that they could easily follow. So it's a picture of God directing us by His Spirit. But here, it it has more to do with God directing us in His will. Uh, When God shows us His will. He shows us He wants us to do something. Now, how does He do that? Well, He does it by His Word, by our conscience, by opportunities we see opening up for us. Uh, He opens doors and we need to walk through them. We need to have the faith to walk through them. So many times as Christians, we lack faith. God will be speaking to us and showing something to us in our lives and we, we are intimidated, we are fearful, we hold back. We don't walk through those doors. But on the other hand, I have to tell you, and I've been guilty of this one, Uh, sometimes we just want to do something, we think it's right, but there's not really an open door, and we want to break down the door uh, and do it anyway. And so neither one of those is is good. God is telling this church at Philadelphia, like he's telling all of us and our churches today, uh, I have given a key, I've opened a door, and that door is open for you, and when I shut it, no man's going to be able to, to open it, and if I open it, no man can shut it. So it's, I'm in control. And that's by that little phrase, he that hath the key of David. That's Christ. I think the key of David is simply a reference to Jesus coming from the Davidic line, the Davidic covenant, that he is the one that holds the key. Uh, Remember back in chapter 1, it it relates to uh, where the Lord talked about him having the keys of of death and hell. Remember he said in verse... um, Let's see, I just saw it here. Uh, Let me find it again. There it is, verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So these keys are back in his hand here, and it's just a reference to his power and authority. Only the Lord can open up things and make things happen. And by the way, we need to allow God to work through us and not get in his way. So he's going to talk about an open door right from the beginning. Now look at verse 8. I know thy works. All seven churches, he says this same statement too. I've been referring to this. And then he goes right back to this open door. This is going to be the important thing that he's going to tell this church at Philadelphia. 
Behold, I've set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. So he's again stressing that he's given some opportunity to this church. Now, again, we don't know exactly what that open door was. We don't, now 2,000 years later nearly, we don't have a lot of information about this church at Philadelphia and exactly what their circumstance was. But evidently, uh, the Lord's stressing that they had a great opportunity. And we can only pray that they took advantage of that and walked through that open door. And so he, he talks about, I know thy works, but this must be a good way. In a good way, he knew that their works. Because he, he says, I set a door open for you to carry out those works. And again, this is God's will as he reveals it to each Christian. And he reveals it to his body, the local assembly, the church. You know, every Christian uh, has, a, has an individual, particular, uh, unique will for, uh, of God for their lives. It could be a calling God has put upon you to do something special. Now, there are certain things every Christian ought to be doing. There are certain disciplines, certain serv- acts of service and, and uh, attitudes and actions and so forth that every Christian ought to be involved in. But there are specific things we need to walk through doors that God opens that are just for us. Well, he goes on to describe them in verse 8, For thou hast a little strength. Now, that's not a negative. Uh, Again, I don't think there's anything negative to this church. What he's saying is that uh, they were, in the eyes of the world, probably an insignificant maybe number of people, uh, maybe the way they looked outwardly, maybe they were just tired, maybe they had been worn down and, and beat down because of persecution. He's not belittling them by saying this. He's just stating a fact that they had been you know, weakened in some way or maybe small in number. And he says, here's, here's how we know he wasn't, he wasn't uh, being negative. He says, it has kept my word and has not denied my, my name. So that little strength didn't affect their service and their devotion, love for Christ. They kept his word. They didn't deny his name, which we saw earlier has to do with their testimony of loving Christ even to the point of death. Now, he goes on again, commend them in verse 9 about some doctrinal things, some positions they were taking. Uh, One position particularly, I should say, really. Uh, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Now, why would he even bring this up? Because evidently, the church there uh, had exposed these people. We saw this idea of the synagogue of Satan earlier. Uh, It was brought up in verse 9 about the church at Smyrna. Isn't it interesting that both these churches he commends, Smyrna and now Philadelphia, he mentions this same idea. And again, as we refer to back in the study of the church at Smyrna, it probably has to do with people who were claiming to be Jewish to in some way uh, look at themselves with superiority over Gentile believers. Remember, there was a lot of Jew and Gentile uh, division and schism and controversy in the early churches. Remember, we're still really in the first century, or at least the end of the first century, so it still probably was very uh, relative, uh, a, a very uh, actual thing that was happening. And so he says, uh, there's people there who said they were Jews, but they were not. Now, again, we could we can only surmise that might mean that they were not even Jewish nationally by ethnicity, or that they were, but they weren't really saved and following Christ, so they could not claim a spiritual connection with the Jewish people that God wanted all Jews to have, like he does today. He wants Jews to be saved, as well as Gentiles. And uh, he, he calls it again the synagogue of Satan. 
which may may mean that there were individuals in that church at Philadelphia who had separated themselves uh, or had tried to overcome this church and take it over and usurp authority over it, and they were they were dealt with. I think he's commending that church by telling them they are liars. Uh, I'm glad that you saw it, and I'm going to punish them. And here's the punishment, and this is a very interesting punishment upon these lying, uh, divisive people in that church that may have already been removed, but maybe we're still there causing havoc. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Wow, this is interesting. When will Jesus make our enemies come and worship before us? He said, before thy feet. Well, I can't get in into it in depth because I'd be giving away a lot of what we'll study in chapter 20 near the end of this book of Revelation, but I'll give you a quick answer. At the judgment seat, or I'm sorry, at the great white throne, when all the wicked come before God and are judged according to the books, I think it'll be there that the Lord is going to force the unsaved and the wicked, these that are liars and of the synagogue of Satan, like these people here, to have to not only bow before him. Remember, the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember Philippians 2? But it, it very well may be by references like this one that they'll be made also to uh, submit themselves in, in humility before God's people whom they hated and persecuted. Uh, and he says, I'm going to make them bow before you to acknowledge that you're my children, that you're serving with me, that you'll reign with me then. The Bible says, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. And to know that I love love thee. Wow, that's going to be interesting. Maybe they had claimed some unique or, or special relationship with the Lord at, at the expense of these other true believers at Philadelphia. And he said, I'm going to turn that around and show them I've really loved you. I didn't love them because they were liars and, and they caused division in the church. Now, he goes on to a special promise for them in verse 10, which is just a tremendous verse about uh, the second coming of Christ and, and the time frame in it. Let me explain. He says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now let's kind of go backwards uh, at the end of the verse and then go backwards in our interpretation of this verse. First we have to decide what is this period of temptation, the hour of temptation that's going to come upon the world to try them, apparently all people. Well, I have to believe that's the tribulation period. Remember how we told you we're breaking down this study in Revelation according to our previous study of eschatology, looking at the big picture of the chronology of the rapture, then the tribulation period, then the second coming, and the millennial kingdom, and the eternity, uh, period of eternity after that. This verse fits perfectly into that uh, look at the time frame I referred to because he says, um, I'm going to reward you for keeping my word, the word of my patience. We saw that earlier, that same phrase. Uh, we're, in other words, we have to be faithful even under great distress, under great trial. We have to be patient to wait on God. We wonder why God makes us go through what he does. And so many Christians before us have, have suffered way more than we have. And so uh, he says, the word of my patience, you've kept it, and I'm going to keep you. Now, look at that. I'm going to keep thee from the hour of temptation. That means he's going to deliver them from it. Now, how could that be? 
Well, if he's writing to these Christians at Philadelphia in the late 90s or mid-90s AD, first century, um, it must mean that they will be delivered sometime later on, uh, which simply fits perfectly into what we know. The dead in Christ shall rise first, uh, and, the, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord there, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the great uh, rapture verses in First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. It fits perfectly here. He's promising them that it, because you kept my word, I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation. Uh, now, it probably has an immediate application too. That's true. No doubt about it. Maybe there was a ongoing or, or soon to be persecution, a terrible persecution that was going to come upon their area. And that part of the world there was a lot of it going on remember we're still in the roman empire and the romans hate the christians and they're wanting to destroy them and wipe them out any way they can so he may be talking about literally a particular temptation but the way he refers to this which shall come upon the world a temptation that's worldwide and so i believe it has to be uh, ultimately referring to the tribulation period and so this verse 10 Revelation 3.10, is a great what we call pre-tribulational verse, which, again, is the teaching that we believe, I believe the Bible teaches most consistently, that Christians will be raptured or caught up and taken out of the world before this terrible time of trial and temptation or tribulation that's going to come on the world. And this verse, I think, backs that up. It's It goes along with what we know happened with Noah and what, what happened with Lot and what's uh, basic teaching of the scriptures. The Lord says he would not judge the righteous with the wicked. He's always done that. Just like he's going to ultimately separate the righteous from the wicked, he's going to separate them at the rapture too. And he's going to leave the wicked to be punished, but he's going to separate the righteous to enjoy uh, everlasting life in his presence and to be uh, given their rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and so on. Now, the next uh, statement in verse 11 tends to again, back this up of what his real meaning was. I don't think verse 10 was really meant to be interpreted for the first century to this church at Philadelphia directly because his next statement, why would he throw this in? Behold, I come quickly. Well, he hasn't come yet. So we're way past the time of the actual church of Philadelphia. We're in our own day, 1900 plus years later. He throws that in to tell you a little bit about, hey, be patient. I'm going to keep you from the temptation that's coming. I'm coming quickly. For you and I, as Christians, that quickly may refer to the manner, not the time frame. It's been a long time and he hasn't come yet. But when he does come, remember what 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52 say? He'll come in a twinkling of an eye, quickly. That very well be the, may be the manner of which he's referring to. Now, he ends verse 11 by saying, Hold fast. Hold that fast. It means hold on to it. Don't let go of it. Which thou hast. Which is simply their, their doctrine, their practice, their devotion, every good thing about them. Because there's always, remember, there's always this temptation. There's always this work of the devil in the flesh and the world to bring us away from God, to pull us away from his, uh, his will for our lives and his path for us to take. And so he just reminds him, hold on, stay the course. Don't give up your faith. Don't turn to the world. That no man take thy crown. 
Wow, that's an interesting ending to verse 11. Remember, these crowns refer to rewards. We've talked a little bit about this already, I believe. Um, the crowns, and there's some say five crowns referred to in the New Testament. I'm not going to run those all the references with you for now. But I do believe these crowns speak of rewards. And what he's saying is, if you and I stay faithful and don't give up on the things that, that God has uh, taught us, the things that we've done for him and, our, and, and the growth we've shown in him and, and how we've matured in him and we've overcome and we've served and we've uh, been fruitful and we've affected other people. Um, he says, you're going to get a crown for that. But if you get off course and you let people take you out of the race and take you, uh, take you uh, away from the battle, then you're going to lose that crown. And that doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation. The Bible teaches once saved, always saved. We know that. He's not talking about losing your salvation, but you can lose your crown. Back in 2 John, a little epistle, one chapter in 2 John. Let me go back there and read it. This is a great verse. He says, um, verse 8 of little 2 John, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have worked for, wrought. The King James uses the old word wrought or worked for, worked hard for. But that we receive a full reward. Didn't you get that? Wow, that's a great way to think about it. A full reward. You remember what Jesus said? I've got to turn back there because it just fits so perfectly into what we're seeing here. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus said this uh, statement, Lay not up yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So it goes along with this idea of storing up rewards because one day we're going to be given those rewards. And so he says, if you'll stay faithful to hold on to what you have, I'm not going to let any man take thy crown. Nobody will take it away from you. And then verse 12, the Lord used this phrase so often. He used it up in verse 5. Uh, he used it in verse 26 of chapter 2. Uh, he's just used it, uh, well, in uh, nearly every church, it looks like. Am I finding it in every church? I think so. Pretty close, yeah. Uh, in every church reference so far, he uses this idea of being an overcomer. Him that overcometh. I love that. Friend, we need to be overcomers. We can't let the world ruin us. We can't let people and circumstances and worries and fears and all the cares of this life get us away from serving Christ and overcoming. Uh, the Lord said, uh, it is required among stewards that a man be found faithful. That's what God asks of us. He doesn't ask me as a pastor to build the biggest church in, in the world. He doesn't ask me to win so many people to Christ and numerically. That's not what he ever asked me to do. He told me to be a faithful witness. He told me to preach the truth, reach people, shepherd the people he's given me in this church. And in my particular ministry, uh, my overcoming is continuing. Just plot on, continue on, no matter what happens. Him that overcometh, and that's what ultimately we overcome through Christ. Who is he that overcometh? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Christ. First John chapter 5. Our, our overcoming is through Christ. We don't take the credit for it, but he works through us, and he gives us determination and strength uh, and greater faith to, to continue on, even in the midst of all the troubles of this wicked, evil world. He says, to him that overcometh, Will I make a pillar in the temple of my God? Now, you know what a pillar is. A pillar is a, a, a big uh, standing 
you know, load-bearing beam type thing. It holds up uh, a, a room. It holds up a, a roof, a ceiling, a porch, whatever. And in the temple of God in the Old Testament, there was two great pillars. Um, um, oh, their names are going to... One of them was Boaz, Jachin and Boaz. Yeah, Jachin and Boaz uh, that Solomon used to hold up the great porch uh, in the beautiful temple that he built in First uh, Kings chapter uh, 7. But anyway, in the temple of God in heaven, he says, I'll make him a pillar. This is symbolic, of course. Remember how the church, by the way, is called the pillar and ground of the truth in 1 Timothy 3.15, I believe? Uh, this is this is equates to that. Uh, the Lord wants us to be like pillars, like, like uh, trees planted by the river uh, that shall not wither, like in Psalm 1. Remember how we're tying all this together. You can see some beautiful similarities here. We need to be faithful to overcome, so we'll be pillars. And he shall go no more out. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. There's going to be a special place for the most faithful Christians. See, I do not believe the Bible teaches that every Christian is going to enjoy and be honored as the same in heaven. I believe everybody that's true, a true Christian will go to heaven and will come down and be on earth during the Lord's kingdom on earth and then eternity. But not every Christian's going to have the same place and the same blessing and reward. And here... Those that overcome and, and that are pillars. He said, I want to make sure you never have to go out. Go out of what? The temple. We'll talk about this temple. It's, it's referred to in Revelation 21 when God's new Jerusalem comes down on this new heavens and new earth. And there's a temple there. And evidently, those that are faithful are going to be closest to him. And they'll never have to leave that place. He says, and I will write upon him the name of my God. Now, again, I'm not going to try to mince words and separate, be too sure. I'm not going to try to say that only these people have the name of God on them. It does continue in the vein of talking about people that are faithful and pillars and will no, go no more out of the temple. But he does say, I'm going to write upon him the name of my God. Now, why does Jesus say the name of my God uh, as if God is different? Well, uh, in separating the triunity of Father, Son, and Spirit, the Lord's done this several times. Remember when Thomas, let me turn back there in John chapter 20, when Thomas finally got to see the resurrected Lord a week after he'd missed the first church service, by the way, uh, when the other 10, remember there's only 11 now since Judas was a false apostle, but he was gone. But when the Lord came to him, remember what happened? Uh, when he sees the Lord finally on that second Sunday service, you might call it. And the Lord tells him, you know, hey, put your hand here and, and into my my hands where the wounds were and you put your hand into my side and see the wound there. It's me. It's not a phantom, a spirit. It's really me. Remember the Lord said, my Lord and my God. Uh, my Lord and my God. Uh, he's just simply making an individual statement about what he thinks of Christ personally. And so Jesus, when he speaks of, back to this phrase, uh, uh, he, by the way, in the Gospels, he would refer to your God and my God. I go to your God and my God. He's only trying to make a personal application to that. He's not separating himself from God the Father. He's equal with the Father. He said in John 10, 31, I'm, I and my Father are one. He's just simply saying, uh, he's my God in a personal way, like he's your God. In the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. I referred to that a moment ago. That's that city that's going to come down from heaven. It's going to be a beautiful thing, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And that's uh, for another lesson. We won't try to develop all these thoughts completely when we know there's 
parts later in the same book that deal with them more exclusively, more in detail. So we'll talk about the New Jerusalem coming down from God. He refers to it in great detail. It's all chapter 21. And then he goes and ends verse 12, and I will write upon him my new name. Well, we've seen a lot about this name. I'll write upon him the name of my God and my new name. Not just the name of my God, but the I'm going to give him a new name, my new name. I don't know what that is. Nobody else would, would be able to tell you either. That's one of those mysterious things we have to wait to find out. When we get to heaven and after the rapture and we stand with the Lord, I think it'll probably be a part of the judgment seat of Christ that we as Christians will go before after we're raptured and we get special rewards there and recognition. And it's a little bit uh, gray to know all the details, but we know enough that it will happen. It's probably here, I would think, that he will do these things, write the new name and and, uh, reward these people. And then he ends by he that hath an ear, as he always says to all the churches, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, before I'm done, I've got a few minutes left, not a long time, but I, I like to conclude by making that application to church history. Uh, now, so far, we have covered the five uh, churches prior. And let me just repeat that uh, little quick review. The church at Ephesus would refer to the infant church, the early church period, 30 A.D. to about 100 A.D., The church at Smyrna would refer to the church period from 100 to 325. I'm not going to take time to explain all that I did earlier. If you haven't listened to those previous podcasts, you can go back and catch that. The church at Pergamos would refer to the period of church history from about 325 to 500. The church at Thyatira would refer to the Dark Ages, the longest period of church history, from 500 to about 1500 A.D., The church at Sardis, we finished last week, would refer to what we call the Reformation period from 1500 to about 1700, 1750, thereabouts. These dates are are not exact. We're just trying to put them in basic uh, uh, time frame. But now the church at Philadelphia is very interesting because to me and to not just to me, I didn't come up with this, many other great, greater uh, teachers and preachers and and uh, writers of, of commentaries have come up with this. I've simply learned from these great men and women that have come before me that have studied the Bible and written on it and preached on it and talked about it and so forth. But they believe that this church at Philadelphia now pictures what we would call the modern mission movement era from about 1750 till about 1950 or thereabouts. Um, I'm blessed to be able to teach at the seminary that I teach at once a week out in Fort Worth. Right now in this semester, I've been teaching the history of missions. and I put together a book uh, a number of years ago, and I've been fine-tuning it and trying to get it published and put out right, but I'm still doing that, editing that book. But that's the notebook that that book is what we use as our notes for this class. And right now, as we're in our semester, we're almost done, uh, we're studying the modern mission movement from about 1750 to about 1950, about 200 years. And that was the greatest period outside the, the early church period and pictured by the church at Ephesus, where so much happened with the apostles in the early churches. Outside of that, the period from 1750 to 1950 was the greatest period in all of church history. More missionaries were sent, more Bibles were produced, more people were saved, more churches were planted, more uh, money was given, more people were helped. I can go on and on and on with the descriptions of how great this period is. And it's all because of this truth. Back in verse 7 and 8, God opened the door. God opened the door. 
he opened the door for his people uh, after burdening the hearts of great men, such men as William Carey, the father of modern missions. He's often called that because William Carey uh, would not uh, stop the the burden he had in his heart. He would not let people discourage him from going to other peoples in the world. He was an, an English uh, preacher. He was a he was a cobbler, a shoemaker, a poor man. But he got a burden from God to go to the other parts of the world to reach people who had never heard. People who lived in darkness. And so in 1792, remember right around the period of this modern mission movement, uh, Carey took his wife and some other, a few other missionary people with him, a few other couples, and they went to India. And from there on, really an explosion of modern missions. Guys like Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and, and David Livingston and, and all and on and on I could go. Robert Moffat. There's just a ton of these great missions. All the way up into the 1900s. And I mention that only because that's the period of time that, that correlates to the church at Philadelphia. You know, Philadelphia, we have a major city in our country, as you know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. There's many Philadelphias and nearly probably every state has a Philadelphia town or township or county or whatever. But anyway, it means the city of brotherly love, right? Isn't that kind of telling that this church, the church at Philadelphia, would have such love for brothers by creation, I mean. You know, in creation, we're all brothers and sisters by creation, not spiritually, you have to be saved if you're part of the family of God spiritually. But by creation, we're all made by God. We're in a universal brotherhood by creation. No matter where we come from, God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. And I think it's beautiful that it's this church at Philadelphia, the church of, of, of brotherly love that is, that is pictured as having this open door that Jesus opens, the key of David opens, for them to go and preach the gospel and for people to be saved all around the world. And so this sixth church, the church at Philadelphia, perfectly is in line with the idea of these seven churches, our periods of church history, this one being the wonderful and exciting period of the modern mission movement. Well, we'll close for today. Next week, we have one more church to cover. And sadly, it's going to be the most discouraging and disappointing church of all. But it's the church that pictures the time we're living, the church at Laodicea. So, Lord willing, we'll get back next week and finish chapter 3. Remember, conviction for truth, compassion for people. God bless you. Mm-hmm.